This is Coda Radio, episode 425 for August 2nd, 2021. Hey friend, welcome into Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business of software development and the world of technology. This episode is brought to you by a cloud guru. You know, Cloud Guru has them cloud playgrounds, Azure, AWS, and Google's cloud in their sandboxes on their credit card, not yours. Get certified. Get hired. Get learning at a cloudguru.com. My name is Chris, and joining us from, actually, I'm not quite sure where, but he is joining us. It's our host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Well, hello, Chris. Uh-oh. <laughs> hello. What happened? You know, like all developers, I have a date. I have a deadline, you know, a project plan. Yep. And it slips dramatically. Deadline, suggestion, you know, one and the same. Delusional expectation setting, maybe. But I mean, you had flights and stuff you had to make. And thank God for travel insurance. So I am Florida man for now. Wow. Was it uh, it a work thing or a personal thing? It was a complicated issue regarding plumbing <laughs> at the place I was supposed to be going to. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Okay. So destination plumbing was not in a good state. So I, you couldn't get there and take a, like a, a poo or something. That is exactly the scenario. I just wasn't going to, you know, turn this into bathroom hygiene radio. But yes. So, you know, I figure keep it classy right at the top of the show. Keep it classy. Right. So I was like, mm, I don't know <laughs> if this is the best move right now, given you can't poop. <laughs> I am I am sorry to hear that. That's super frustrating. It's a mild exaggeration. It technically, but there were definitely some some issues. That's always rough because you got everything all set up. And you know, it's when you're moving to, it's one of those things where everybody's asking you, okay, when you're doing this, what's happening? So you've been telling everybody, everybody's got expectations, and it just gets a whole life of its own. And then, of course, things don't go through. <laughs> That's, yeah. So I got to ask, you know, I got to do the typical follow-up question that's always super annoying. Do you have any idea when you're going to get in there? Uh, I think definitely not until after the school year at this point, because school starts now next week. Oh, so it's going to be prolonged Florida, man. It's prolonged Florida, man. Wow. 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 Okay. All right. Well, you know, uh, you might as well stay through the winter and get the nice weather. That's right. This is the only email we have on, on this particular topic, but Spicy Chris wrote in, I know you saw this. He says, after... You're effing gnome bashing. I thought I'd write you about an alternative I've been using for years. You've been gnome bashing, apparently. I, not me, obviously. Of course not me. Everybody knows that I've I've never said anything negative about gnome, so they're clearly just talking about you. No, it was all me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, Spicy Chris says, just use the terminal, bro. Uh, the command line is thorough. It's got all kinds of combinations of text applications, and you can use things like Tmux and Vim and... You know, even got file managers if you want them. It's highly modular, highly customizable, integrates with scripts in the command line. Great. Uh, It's easy to write your own shell scripts when you need to. You never have to worry about the mouse. It reduces RSI injuries. And the UI never changes unless you want it to. And no one ever pulls the rug out from underneath you. You still will need to come up with a way to do a web browser, though. So uh, just use the damn terminal if you want to use Linux. No, I don't know. I mean, sure, terminal's great. I use terminal all the time. You know what he is? He's a Mac user. He doesn't want to admit it. Because this is what guys say. It's like, why do you even need to use the GUI on Linux? Just SSH into a Linux server. This is this is something we got into the show. It's like, just if you want to use Linux, use it on the server, SSH into it, and, and do it through a Mac. Or now Windows, too, I suppose people might say, but we haven't gotten that. I don't buy this. I, this sounds like this email from Spicy Chris here. 
It sounds like something a younger version of me would say, like a little bit ignorant of like people's history. I was born in the fires of graphical interfaces, literally born in the fires of building UIs. And I slogged it out. Every bad computer interface, every bad cell phone interface, every bad car infotainment interface. You see, son, I've lived through it all. And I haven't lived this long slogging through every bad UI design that could come up since UIs were a thing. I haven't done all of it just to toss it all aside and use the command line. What has all of this sacrifice of time and patience and essentially beta testing for the next generation been, if not to enjoy the fruits of my labor? So Spicy Chris, you're wrong. While the terminal is awesome and it's completely worth learning, it should not be your only interface to your computer. This is not 1979. Just my take. Just my take. But I'm not also on the side of uh, the camp that says you should never use the terminal on Linux. I think we, we in, in, in an attempt to make a Linux more appealing, we try to pretend like the command line isn't necessary. And I think it gives people a false impression of the situation. A little command line is good. Uh, I mean, I, I don't particularly like the writer's uh, sentiment. I, I agree with you that it's kind of, I don't know, dismissive of people's concerns. The, the real answer is like, if you don't like GNOME, then like, you know, other KDE exists, right? As people keep telling me. I mean, forget about, forget about GNOME for a second. What do you think about this idea that you should be able to use the computer without ever having to touch the command line? I think it's a bull goalpost because you can't even do that on the Mac. There's some things that if you want to change preferences, you have to write some com file from the command line. Well, and one of the big selling points of the Mac is even though Apple doesn't push it as hard now, but certainly was back in the day, that it's Unix with a good UI. Well, that's whatever. Yeah, everybody that ever writes in that says, "If I want a GUI that's good, I use the Mac because it's got Bash." C shell now, but yeah. But it's not a good Unix use. It's not a great user user land though. The the Unix environment, it, it kind of stinks. Yeah, you load up Homebrew and you're fine. I mean, ish. Yeah, yeah, it makes it better. It does make it better. All right. Um. Well, Liam, our carrier spy, writes in and says, "Mike is right." Congratulations, 5G is basically, it's basically a lie. Um, you see, what Liam says is ever since 4G LTE was deployed, the Gs that you see, like 4G or 5G, are really no longer relevant. LTE stands for long-term evolution, meaning its core is supposed to last for a long time. The 3GPP released LTE in 2008, and they create new incremental cellular releases roughly every one to two years. Since LTE, there have been some improvements for consumers, but most of the improvements are targeted towards industrial features such as IoT or vehicle to vehicle or vehicle to base station, right? Makes sense. Or like making it better indoors for people. 4G slash 5G is perfectly capable of supporting people's day-to-day mobile broadband needs. The real challenge is convincing telegrams to meaningfully deploy it everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, really. You mean to like spend money on towers? What? Yeah, my bet is actually on LTE. I'm hoping that the that because you know, they are deploying some new towers and there are some new frequencies with 5G. So my hope is is that they sell everybody on 5G. Apple's going to help and Google's going to help with the Pixel Six. They're all they're all pushing 5G. So all of the rubes will get on 5G and then the LTE network will open up for guys like me. <laughs> They'll just sell it to me for cheap. That's what they've done with the Edge network and the 3G network as they've moved on. Is they've kind of open those networks up to just flat rate pay you know one flat fee kind of plans all the data you could want 
that kind of stuff. So I'm all about that. I hope 5G takes off in that way just so the LTE network opens up. But um, 5GE, that is just LTE. That's good info, Liam. Thank you. If you've got any other insights into the cellular industry, please do let us know. If you've got an area of biz that you're in that you think we'd love an interesting insight into that most people aren't aware of, let us know. That's, a, that's the kind of thing we'd love to get into the show. Coder.show slash contact is where you go for that. And uh, we also love your responses to the show, anything like that. And we should also mention, I don't know, did we say it in the show? I know we said it on the stream, but we're at a new live time now on Mondays. Both Mike and I are adjusting to it uh, because A, he didn't move. And B, I haven't slept for not just one night. I haven't slept for two nights, two different reasons. <laughs> so I actually fell asleep at 7 a.m., but then we had the new show time. So ironically, if the show was at the old time this week, I could have slept more. <laughs> but I had to get up <laughs> to do the show at the new earlier time. <laughs> It's the worst. But anyways. It's amazing. I know. But it's okay. I'll get my sleep. It's it's fine. It'll I'll catch up. I'll probably take an afternoon nap. But yeah, so we have the new live time. It's at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern at jblive.tv on Mondays. And the next one that we'll do, I'll be on the road. I'll be on the way to Salt Lake City for our Salt Lake City meetup. And then from Salt Lake City, I head off to Denver. So we have a meetup on the 7th of August in Salt Lake City. And then we have a meetup on the 20th in Denver. And we will have that at meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. Linode will be at the Denver one. We're going to the Pindustry, which is an awesome, awesome, like, basically adult fun zone. I mean, not like that kind of adult. I mean, like a fun zone built for adults. <laughs> I don't know how that, I don't know how else to phrase that. <laughs> I didn't know we were taking this direction. Hey, I figured let's branch out, right? Hey, yeah, it's uh, it's Jupiter at night. No, um, it's uh, it's like a, it's obviously it's got pinball, but it's got bowling and it's got it's a huge facility in the Denver area. So that's where we're gonna have our meetup. Linode's gonna be giving away Raspberry Pis. We're gonna create some exclusive content from the road trip and releasing that in the extras feed towards uh, you know middle of end of September whenever the hell I get back. That's all. That's all coming. So do join us next week because somehow I'll be pulling off some sort of technical miracle to live stream this show live from the road because it's gonna be tight. We're gonna have a full RV full of kids and humans, so it's gonna be a, a feat on multiple levels, like trying to keep the business going while still going down the road while also trying to take the kids on a family trip, while also trying to create content for the release once we get back. Super Chris. Da, da, da. And doing the meetups. And the meetups. Oh, my God. So let's see how all that goes. <laughs> That's too much. Damn. I overdid it, didn't I? I'm realizing that now. <laughs> just before it all starts. We'll see. Maybe it'll turn out just fine. Maybe it'll be fine. Maybe. We'll see. Meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. <laughs> Linode.com slash coder. Go there to get $100 and 60-day credit on a new account, and you go there to support the show. This here Coder Radio program is made possible because you go take advantage of our sponsor offers. That's a huge part of what keeps this show on the road itself. And Linode is one of those sponsors that we can enthusiastically endorse. Linode's been around since 2003. It's one of the very first companies in cloud computing. I don't even, I don't even think it was called cloud computing back then. But now... 18 years later, it sure is, and they're still in the game. They're the largest independent open cloud provider in the world. They have 11 data centers around the world that you can choose from, millions of customers and businesses, and they are still focused on making cloud computing simple, affordable, and accessible to all. What I love about Linode 
is their infrastructure is bulletproof, rock solid fast. And if you want to just get an application up on the web and start working on a project, they have avenues you can take to do that super quick. Or if you want to deploy a couple of core infrastructure servers and build up applications on those servers and do it yourself, Linode makes that possible as well. They've really refined that dashboard of theirs to make this kind of gradient of usability super, super accessible. And then on top of that, they've layered in really great features like DDoS protection, cloud firewalls, VLAN support, a powerful DNS manager, an easy way to manage block storage. So if you need a little extra disk on a server, they could totally accommodate that. Or you can go the route that I often go is I take advantage of Linode's S3 compatible object storage. That stuff rocks. Not only is it super crazy fast, not only can you possibly generate a HTTP URL for every file in the object storage if you want with great permissions management, but it allows you to kind of grow, expand, and, con con and I guess contract your storage as you need it. And that is just one less thing to manage. Like how embarrassing it is when your system goes down because like I had this happen with Nextcloud. I added a bunch of files and then I deleted a bunch of files thinking they'd be removed. But of course they were just being stored in the deleted recycle area of the server. So then when we added the next batch of files, we ran out of storage and the whole server went down. And, <laughs> you know, like who has time for that in the middle of the workday? Nobody. And so that's why I transitioned that system over. I, I say like I did it. Of course, we as a team did it. We transitioned it over to S3 object storage. And it's really accessible and approachable, something like Nextcloud, because they have that kind of stuff built right in. Of course, Linode also has more advanced features if that's your jam. Maybe you want to make it part of your multi-cloud setup. They've got Kubernetes support, Terraform support. They just make all of it very, very straightforward. And then it's all sitting on top of super fast networking, super fast hardware that they keep up to date. Their high-end CPU systems are AMD Epic processors. And then they wrap it all up with just the best support in the business, the best customer support there is by phone or ticket. And that's just a nice little insurance policy to have. So go grab our $100 and try it out. You can learn something, deploy something, or maybe you just want to just compare it. That $100 lets you kick the tires. So go to linode.com slash coder, get $100 and 60-day credit on a new account. And of course, you support the show. That's linode.com slash coder. So I, uh, I feel like talking a little ice cream. We have a new open source compiler. And if the developer from Stripe is to be believed, this new... Sorbet compiler is 22 to even 170% faster than Ruby's default implementation. I like speed. Just maybe a quick background. Ruby is an interpreted language. It's like Python if Python were written by sane people. <laughs> well, unfortunately, it's not very popular because the entire Ruby community more or less was subsumed by Rails. Rails fell out of favor. <sighs> just it, Ruby is just so elegant. We could keep moving on. But it's an interpreted language is the point, right? But... You know, speed is a problem in interpreted languages. Sorbet is actually, like Chris said, from the folks at Stripe. It is like a static, it was only, a, not only, but it was a, it's basically like a static analyzer that like adds some type checking and stuff like that to Ruby. Ruby is a dynamic language. And this is now a compiler based on that or kind of in parallel to that. Um, it's powered by LLVM, which anyone who's done any development recently probably knows what LLVM is. We don't need to talk about it. If you don't know, it's a compiler, right? I mean, it's, it's compiled. Well, it's, there's a great episode of ATV for last summer. He explains the details, but think about it like Clang LLVM. If you've ever done any iOS development, you've used it. And actually I think, is this still, is this true on the stock Ubuntu now that the default C++ compiler is uh, based on the LLVM tooling, or is it still 
um, GCC. That, I don't know. I know it is easy to get it on Ubuntu. They have it packaged up, but I don't think it's by default. I don't think so. At least not in 2004. Okay, so yeah, because at the Matabotter, we use LLVM and LODB um, just to keep everything unified, right? So yeah, but I, so I'm not sure if that's like a something I set up on our our image of our stock Pop OS or if that's just how it is. Like, I don't remember. And it is in the repo, so it's like one apt install away. <laughs> what this does is exactly what it says on the tin, right? It is a compiler for Ruby that makes it damn fast. That is pretty cool. They are saying that they are using it in production. Yeah. But they admonish you not to. <laughs> so take that. <laughs> Don't do as we do. Yes. <laughs> um, he goes on with, this, with a pretty good conversation about like, why not do a JIT compiler? Why not just improve the Ruby VM? And I think the reasons make a ton of sense. I wonder if this is really going to get too much adoption. Yeah. Because it feel, I feel like the majority of people that I talk to that are using Ruby are using them for fairly, I mean, I'm going to say simple, but fairly run-of-the-mill Ruby on Rails applications. Where this kind of thing, certainly fast is good, but wouldn't necessarily be super helpful for the day-to-day problems they have. Also, when you read their motivations as to why they decided to open source Sorbet, I mean, a lot of times people get into this stuff to scratch their own itch. But it doesn't sound like the core things that generally lead to a lot of community adoption. Um, like, so the number one reason at the top of their list that they are open sourcing this now is that they had already shared it with a couple of people, a handful as they put it, and it was toilsome to manage who they shared it with and who they hadn't. So this just makes that easier. And then, you know, they have other things in here like sometimes, you know, you get some improvements. <laughs> <laughs> like just like really just not super enthused about the community aspect of open sourcing and it's much more a utility of you know it was just getting hard to track this and we figured we put it out there i mean you know it kind of it, it kind of depends on our internal data structures anyway so we got all that figured out we had a lot of it already done so it was just sort of the last piece this <laughs> is very blase yeah and then there's a ruby community aspect of this of you know this is not going to shake the ruby community to its core i don't think unless my perception of what's going on is very very wrong which i don't think it is do you think it could inspire some changes well it's interesting because their model for type checking in ruby right was not adopted by the ruby core team you can use one or the other i think you can even kind of use them both together but Ruby 3, spoilers for this is going way deep. We covered this uh, about six months ago, I think. Added type checking. Sorbet has had type checking. And they're kind of on parallel tracks. First of all, you have to need this, right? Like if, if you're just writing like a line of business Rails app, you don't need this. And this is just adding extra weirdness to your project. There's so much going on in the let's add type checking and performance improvements to, you know, to interpreted language space now that I'm kind of skeptical with some of this. Like Python has something like this too, right? They've added type checking to a point or types to a point. To me, at some point, if you're taking interpreted languages and writing a compiler for it, basically your problem is you probably shouldn't have been doing this stuff in the interpreted language. So that is where exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Right. And the answer is, well, it was fast to get a proof of concept, you know, a V1 up in Ruby because Ruby is a great language for developer efficiency. And they admit freely, and if you read their blog, which is a really great blog, the Stripe developer blog, 
that they do lots of their projects in Go and like I think uh, Java, Java because they're mm-hmm. fast, yep. right? So yep. yep, yep, which makes sense. It's Stripe. Their problem is performance and scalability, right? They're oper- they're literally operating at we process tons of payments in the world. Not only is that critical for them, but it's so so critical for all the businesses that depend on Stripe. Like that's mission critical stuff. Payments, right? So they've got to get it right. And so when you read the post and you kind of read into what they're saying. To me, it looks like, well, exactly what you just said. They created a lot of this because it was quick to get going, but now they're now they've got to keep it running because of the business critical nature and the teams that are maintaining the existing Ruby stuff just desperately, urgently need things to run faster. And then they have, as they put it, a handful of teams that are using Java and Go in new areas that they've rebuilt. They say that Stripe's existing Ruby code base is many millions of lines of code and implement Stripe's most business critical workloads, i.e. the most core value stuff is written in Ruby. (laughs) So that's why they're spending the time to make this better, even if they rewrite it one day. Yeah, you know, that's like the magical rewrite. Yeah, the refactor that's always, you know, one year away. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, I mean, I have the same problem. Well, actually, I literally had this problem in Ruby about a year and a half ago. Um, I solved it by writing the component I needed in Rust and on another project, C++. Right now I'm doing the same thing in Python. I have a thing that needs to be more performant. So I wrote one little stupid module in C++. Little stupid module that does like mission critical stuff that re- involves like processing a bunch of data. Right? So, and it's just a native binary that the Python application can call into. I, th- I could see this being useful for some people in the audience. Oh yeah, it's, I think it is useful. So yeah, we'll have a link in the show notes for that. And you could check out some of the some of the, I mean, 170% faster. <laughs> like that's, I don't care who you are. That's, that gets your attention. If it's real, that gets your attention. We're going to have to struggle with things that may or may not be real, but I can confirm uh, that Linux Action News just hit 200 episodes. And we have a sticker out for that. And also, I was just going to mention Self Hosted just hit episode 50. Like these young kids, Mike, we're sitting here at 425 and Self Hosted just hit 50 episodes. Linux Action News just hit 200. They're, they're so cute. I know. We have new stickers for both self-hosted and Linux Action News that are taken from the MP3 album art, which seems fitting for like milestone releases. And those are up at jupitergarage.com, along with some new swag up there at jupitergarage.com. I, I, I just want to recommend uh, the Chris the Badger shirt. I can say that I am ordering several <laughs> because... Having your face on my chest has always been a dream of mine. Absolutely. And you know how I, I, uh, I prefer that, uh, that left boob of yours. So I think that's right where my head will be. Well, it does flop at a very unique angle. I've, I've always thought it was a, it was a bit of a, of a unique uh, snowflake. So that's jupitergarage.com. That's our swag store. And uh, we're going to get some more. You know, eventually, if we ever do another run on the coder robe, um, that, that's where it will go. Don't mention the coder robe. <laughs> Irvine, or Irv- Irving, he, Irvin, he just wrote in. He said he loves his coder. He says it's, it's his great. He works in it every day. The only thing he says we should do now is we should get an optional lint roller with it because yeah. since he started working in his coder, his cat's all over him, and now he needs to get the cat hair off it. Well, the, you know, the coder, I write 50% fewer bucks. I just want to say, like... Really? Yeah. It must be the arm support. <laughs> you know, it's cut so that way it doesn't get in the way of typing. Okay, so this next story, it seems so freaking far out. I had to, like, go make sure you weren't trolling me when you linked this story up. Nice. This is Doctor Who level, like, Star Trek, like, an actual thing in Star Trek. Like, this is nuts. A research team 
with dozens of scientists working in partnership with Google's Quantum Computing Lab, may have created the world's first time crystal. We're not kidding you. They've created a time crystal. Like a perpetual motion machine, a time crystal forever cycles between states without consuming energy. Physicists claim to have built this new phase of matter inside a quantum computer. If it is true, it is literally the magical breakthrough quantum computers have needed. Um, so I know this sounds wild, and I know it sounds impossible, and there's white papers that will have linked in the show notes. It seems the Google team may have figured out what was once theoretical and actually created this thing in a quantum computer. And they called a new phase of matter. It would be like having a snowflake that consistently cycled back and forth between two different configurations of its crystalline shape. It's a seven-point lattice one moment and then, say, a ten-point lattice the next moment or whatever. Like, if you could imagine a snowflake that does that, that's sort of how a time crystal is. What Google has done is potentially prove that humans can manufacture time crystals. In the words of the researchers themselves, quote, These results establish a scalable approach to studying non-equilibrium phases of matter on current quantum processors. Okay, I, I'm really not following what any of that means, but it sounds like a really huge deal. Like, people are freaking out in the scientific community about this. It means the doctor is back and the Daleks are coming. It's so hard to understand it. I can barely even say the words to even wrap my head around it, right? It is super complicated, but it could mean that we have kind of a solution, if this is my understanding of it. We could have kind of a solution that we've needed to kind of take quantum computers into actual daily use. Well, I, I'm actually excited about this. Obviously, people are writing about how this could th be like the very, very baby steps, like a theoretical warp drive, which is nuts, but um, maybe not nuts, right? You all be laughing at me. But really, will this finally enable us to automatically change our desktop background in GNOME? I can't believe you. <laughs> I cannot believe you. First, you dismiss all of their response, and then you troll them again. It's amazing. That is savage. Kidding aside, this is a huge deal, right? But it, it's, it's, it's so, it's so like, well, one, all right, this hasn't been peer-reviewed, right? So this could be a fluke. That would be very depressing. Could be some kind of, you know, it needs to be a repeatable result to actually be accepted. But assuming, like, I don't think Google would make this up. In Princeton University, certainly wouldn't, right? Right, yeah. So this is like the beginning. We all might be dead listening to this when this actually matters. Maybe. But this is the beginning of a whole new wave of computing, right? Think about quantum computing. The whole big deal is like multivalent states, right? It's not just ones and zeros anymore. So that... That's just like, literally, everybody listening to the show will effectively be a dinosaur once this becomes big enough. Even if we're still around, just because this is a whole new way of computing. Yeah. Yeah. That sucks for us, but hey, if I get a flying car. Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, Google definitely thinks this is real. Uh, they've, uh, with uh, Cornell University, are publishing uh, a white paper that we'll have linked in the show notes. And in here, they basically promise the moon. In the uh, literally, they say they'll demonstrate it, and uh, yeah, I mean, wild. But you're right. Even if even if it was something they could start working on in the next ten years, the industry wouldn't transition forever. 
So <laughs> it's not going to, you're right. It's not going to really impact us. Maybe, maybe governments, you know, and large institution and research computers. So maybe could have an, could have an impact on our lives in the way that supercomputers do now where they're helping in research. Mm, and spying on us. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Datadog.com slash Coder Radio. Go there to get a 14-day free trial, support the show, and get a free shirt after you create one dashboard. Datadog lets you analyze code-level performance across your environment and troubleshoot issues faster than ever using Datadog's tools, like their continuous profiler that automatically collects profiles from your production servers all the time. So you can analyze your data quickly with minimal overhead. Get your answers quickly and communicate that with your team. You get a unified picture of your environment by correlating code performance metrics with your other monitoring data from your entire stack, all in beautiful real-time dashboards. And it gets even easier with over 450 integrations for tracing, log management, and other enterprise applications you're probably already using that connect in with that continuous profiler. It's all in one product, all in one platform. Datadog enables you to pinpoint the root cause of issues faster than ever. So go try it out for free for 14 days by visiting datadog.com slash coder radio for a limited time if you start a free trial and you create one dashboard you'll get a free datadog t-shirt and i love free swag and i could definitely use a t-shirt right now <laughs> so go to datadog.com slash coder radio oh, there's one last article i wanted i wanted to talk to you about it was emailed into us a couple of times as, as a suggestion to get our take on it and it ran over at techcrunch.com it's from Sean O'Mara, and it's titled The End of Open Source? Question mark. And the inflammatory title almost made me want to dismiss it immediately. But the root of what Sean writes about here is actually something that crossed my mind. So several weeks ago, well, actually April, so it's been more than weeks, there was a ban by the Linux kernel team of the University of Minnesota for committing hypocrite commits that was commits to the Linux kernel that were intentionally buggy to create a problem. Now, that code never shipped in production. And when the kernel team found out they were doing this, which it was, they, they found out earlier in the year. They didn't find out in April. But there was another series of commits in April that they suspected might be part of that research renewed. The timing also worked out fantastically for the kernel team. Because by creating a huge issue in April about these hypocrite commits, even though they had occurred earlier in the year, they were able to get the talk that was scheduled at a security symposium canceled that was about these hypocrite commits to the Linux kernel. And essentially what happened is a trusted source at the University of Minnesota used a basic kind of crappy static analyzer to find obvious low-hanging fruit in the Linux kernel. And then... It seems unclear, but three to five times that were made it through the first uh, pass of maintainers submitted patches that ostensibly seemed to fix that bug, but were so complex and gross, actually intentionally introduced other vulnerabilities when stacked with other elements in the code. Now, that made it past the first level maintainer, but never made it to Linus's tree. But the research is actually kind of valid. The research idea was, can we exploit our position of trust to get vulnerabilities into a project like the Linux kernel, even with its structured process of maintainers and all of that? And the answer is, yes, they could. They did it successfully. 
Now, the big upset and the ban, which dominated the headlines, essentially killed the messenger of that research. And so the actual results were kind of put aside. And instead, the focus was put on how dare they violate the colonel team's trust in time with these hypocrite commits. And the discussion never really came back to was it valid research or not. And what Sean is saying over at TechCrunch is that when you look at the complexity of this particular problem, abusing a trusted source to submit hypocrite commits, that is a problem that is going to impact the entire open source ecosystem. Every free software project out there needs to be thinking about this. And the Linux kernel is probably the best suited to defend against something like this in terms of resources and structure, and it was compromised. So what do you think is going to happen to something like Nginx or grep or something lower in the stack that does maybe have only one maintainer? And so what Sean is saying is, this is a huge problem, and essentially open source is dead in the water security-wise until they come up with a way to solve this problem. And he argues that the net result is projects that are large in scale are even worse off. They are just utter unprepared to deal with this game-changing hyperscale threat model, he writes. He says the researchers were able to target and get their patches in in code that was reviewed by a maintainer. Maybe they didn't maybe they didn't review it fully. Who knows? But essentially, by abusing their insider position in the community, the maintainer probably just took a quick glance at it and said, well, it's garbage, but it'll fix the issue, I suppose. So is this what do you think? Is, is open source essentially screwed unless they come up with a way to secure this end of the development chain? Yeah, I saw the story uh, in like early May and I kind of ignored it because one, I'm sure this happens all the time with or without intent. Right. I and I can. Personal experience, right? I have a lot of dependencies, but a lot of PIP dependencies, and people make mistakes when they update their thing or they don't realize they're breaking backwards compatibility with some other uh, package you're, you're relying on, right? Great. There, I mean, there are tons of examples, but like there was a intentional, and I, I don't remember, the, it was part of the Heartbleed stuff where the gem for SSL on Ruby, they just like killed a bunch of versions of it because it was uh, exploited, but that really screwed up a bunch of Rails projects for me um, and caused a lot of heartache. It forced me to update faster than I wanted to. Also, going to the proprietary side, and I'm, I'm going to get to the point in a minute, don't governments around the world either hoard zero days or, in fact, demand backdoors? Well, and look what we just saw with the NSO group and and the iPhones and Androids that were getting exploited. Yeah, I mean, isn't that just an intentional exploit. Yeah, they're, they're sitting on some exploit to take advantage of that. In order to get past Blastor on iMessage, which is the sandbox for iMessage, they have to be using some exploit that Apple doesn't know about. Yeah, I don't... Uh, I kind of don't buy this. I think this is a fun story. Because uh, it... Yes, the, the the weird part, it was university re- researchers who you might expect better from. Yeah. But this is like saying, hey, if I have the key to your, your liquor store, I can rob you. Okay, so yeah, any contributor to any project could do this, and this has been going on for decades, literally, right? Via you know government entities. That's my take, and or just people that are dicks that are just you know doing stupid stuff to be a jerk. The thing is, is we have more tooling now than ever to track changes and revert changes and revoke permissions or honest mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. Heartbleed was not on purpose, right? I mean, it feels like there's definitely a, a, a technological solution to this. We could have more tools that are checking patches 
and smarter and smarter. Like, again, I go back to Copilot. Wouldn't it be interesting if this was a problem Copilot was solving? But and maybe there is some project governance here. Um, it's so tricky when you have a project like the scale of the Linux kernel. There's no model to follow there. They're inventing how you manage a project at that scale every day. So it's hard to criticize how they manage it, <laughs> you know? But this is the thing, right? Unless you're going to go full TNO, you're trusting lots of people whenever you're building modern software. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if, even if you were pure, like, Microsoft stack only. Well, one, it's open source now, so it's really in the same league. And two, even when it wasn't, I would argue it was less secure. Because if you're just getting some proprietary, you know, binary library or binary blob or whatever the hell you're doing... You don't know, right? No one else, no one outside of the organization who's probably NDA'd out the butt has looked at that code. And yes, I, I agree. When you go to GitHub and you pull down somebody's gem or somebody's pip project, you should assume that everybody's a Russian spy. Naturally. Naturally. I, I mean, what do you, what do you, what's the alternative? Are we going to all write everything in assembler ourselves? <laughs> You're going to write the entire stack every time. You know what? Just for the next three years, I'm just working on my own custom file system. I call it ButterFS. Oh! You know, but this problem is, it is the conundrum that is coming across in every aspect of technology right now. So like self-hosting, do you self-host everything? Do you use Google for some things? Do you use iCloud when you have an iPhone? Yeah, or do you run Nextcloud? And do you run that entire stuff yourself? You don't, you don't use Google App Engine, that's for sure. I'm saying what you <laughs> well, that's just it, isn't it? It's actually a series of balances and compromises and picking and choosing what you put all the work into, what you essentially are, you could almost consider it contracting out in a way outsourcing it's a big balance now and so it is it is in just about all elements now it's kind of a wild thing we're really creating a pretty significant interweb of dependency what could go wrong well also i would be a little more afraid of proprietary systems in fact it is probably my one big thing against uh you know mac and ios is apple is a company that has proven super willing to bow to the Chinese government for all kinds of crazy shit, right? Like, sure. why not some backdoor into iMessage or into... Uh, um, iCloud for... iCloud, right. Like, At least with the Linux kernel, you know there's some crazy dude from somewhere in Libsyn or, I don't know, some Europe, Munich or something who's like, no, freedom, ha. Yeah, there's going to be there's going to be somebody that's checking it just to cover their own ass too, right? There's so many different motivations for using that technology that somebody's just paranoid. And when they discover something, they'll make a blog post and become famous. <laughs> right, exactly. Like they're, 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 I, I am confident that there is some freedom-bearded wizard in Europe somewhere who doesn't give a crap what the U.S. or Chinese governments have to say and is going to look at all these patches. Yeah, there is that, there is that element of, at the end of the day, there's no one particular corporate interest that's twisting it and, right. and making it into something. And that is... In a way, it's a different kind of security, right? It's a different kind of trust. Like you can, you can have confidence in, in the security of Windows 11 or iOS. Like you can have some confidence there, but you know, in the back of your mind, like those kind of corporate vulnerabilities, even if the code is pristine, those kind of corporate vulnerabilities exist, and it's just the nature of being in business at that size. That's just the reality. It's just how it is. And that's a different kind of trust where open source, you can trust that that thing doesn't exist. Maybe there's flaws. Maybe somebody is submitting hypocrite commits, but you can trust that it doesn't have those corporate flaws. 
Right. And also like, let, let's just take the crazier case, which you, I think you, you'll remember for sure. Cause we covered it. But a couple of years ago, there was a story where Facebook and Google and a bunch of the big tech companies here had to admit that they kind of got hammered. They had a bunch of like Chinese spies working there. Yep. Yeah. They're targets. They're targets. And so, but in the open source world, let's just say like, you know, Chris is a Chinese spy. You can soundboard that. <laughs> and he's like trying to infiltrate the podcasting world. Right. Um, he's going to hack Fireside or something. Well, if it's open source, somebody's going to notice, what the hell is this? Why is all the traffic going to like Shenzhen? That doesn't seem right. Proprietary, you'd never know. Yeah. Right? Even Facebook didn't know that they had a handful of, of Chinese spooks there. Google didn't know. They had to get rid of them. Right? The, the government had to help them. That Facebook thing. Are you aware that the first time you probably heard of the NSO group was actually a couple of years ago when a story came out that Facebook attempted to buy the Pegasus software so that way they could monitor iOS users outside of what the sandbox rules allow them to do? I did not remember that. But Pegasus... <laughs> yeah, the, the very Pegasus software that is at the center of this whole NSO group controversy right now about hacking phones using zero-day exploits, Facebook tried to get up to become a contractor, and they turned them down. They were turned down. And this, the reason we know this is it's in a legal deposition. It's in court documents that it came out. That's how we found out about this. So it seems pretty legit. <laughs> and that's, that's, you cannot trust them. You just cannot trust these companies that are living off of data. They were willing to use spy malware to track users outside of what the OS, what iOS naturally allows for. Wow. I did not realize. I, I, I forgot about that. That's. Whew. Yeah, that's really something. And in the deposition, too, they're complaining, you know, the iPhone is just a lot harder to track the users than the Android phones are. So we need to buy something for the iPhone so that way we can kind of get more data. Um, and Facebook is uh, suing the NSO group, I think, or some sort. Of, anyways, I'll put the link in the show notes. I don't remember the details because it was like two years ago. But um, remember, yeah. remember when people used to just like sell software for money? Yeah. Those were the days. Oh, here it is. I just found the details. So the spyware would have been inserted into the VPN software that Facebook bought, uh, Anavo, um, which was a VPN app that got pulled off of the App Store back in 2008 by Apple for violating data collection policies. And then the NSO group, the NSO group in their deposition in court said, quote, the Facebook representative stated that Facebook was concerned that its method for ga gathering user data through Anavo project was less effective on Apple devices than on Android devices. Then they continued to say, quote, the Facebook representatives also stated that Facebook wanted to use purported capabilities of Pegasus to monitor users on Apple devices and were willing to pay for the ability to monitor Anovo Protect users. Anovo Protect used to spy on you. I love that Orwellian twisting, too. That's so great. Facebook's just great. So, yeah. Yeah, there is something to open source beyond just um, the the kind of more flashier things that people talk about. There's, the, there's just at least nobody that's trying to <laughs> hack your VPN to spy on you. <laughs> and if, the, if they are, they get caught. Right. There's another sinister side of the Innovo story where Facebook ended up having to admit to they used the VPN traffic on people's phones to see what the new and up-and-coming apps were to either buy them or kill them. Right. That's how they bought WhatsApp. Yeah. They just, well, there's a lot of traffic going on this thing. Let's get rid of it. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yep, yep, yep. So they're creepy. It's all really super creepy. And so, no, I say it's not the end of open source. I agree with you. In fact, it's probably just going to transition into a new phase because this kind of, um, what do you call it? Lack of trust, trust debt, whatever we might have in large companies and institutions is going to drive market for the adoption of open source. And companies are going to continue to be able to say, you know, this is our service, XYZ, brand new service, super scalable service is backed by open source. But I, I want to just throw a little monkey wrench in all that. That's nice independent thinking. Did you see the story about uh, the super militaristic raid on the Bitcoin boys up in, I think it was uh, New Hampshire? Oh, no, really? Mm. <laughs> Why? Why were they using too much power? <laughs> they refused to get a license to transmit money. And the federal government's response to that was tactical assaults on their home. The one lady they picked up was just like sleeping in her underwear and T-shirt. And they like told her if she moved, they'd shoot her. Wow. So you're saying I should probably uh, store my crypto somewhere outside the studio. I would definitely have a VPN. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, hey, Coder QA members out there, CoderQA.co. If you want to become a member and support the show, you get a limited ad feed and you get the Coderly report. And uh, we reposted over the weekend because only about half the members like got the auto-generated RSS feed. So if you missed it, check your feed again. The Coders, the Quoters, nope, the Quoters, Quoter. You understand what I'm saying. There's a new coder QA out there for, uh, for you members out there. So go get it for the team. I, I, don't, I don't. The words are completely gone now. It's it's like I haven't slept for two nights and I can't even get through. Yeah, you'd think I'd never done it before. Well, I do remember to 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 start wrapping us up. I do know there's something else we should say. Like maybe you want to send anywhere, anybody, any place, like a website or I don't know a damn Twitter page. I don't know. Follow me at Dumanuko on Twitter. You're giving away computers. Damn. Oh yes, I forgot about that. I always forget things. Yeah. Yeah, we're giving away Thalios. I have to write up the actual terms, but it's another student contest. I'll have it ready for next week. That's nice. Yeah, I mean, we know you're you're busy these days, but that's pretty great. If you're a student out there, and you know. What student couldn't use a Thalia? Keep an eye out for that. I'm on the Twitters too, at Chris LES. The network is at Jupiter Signal, and the whole show is at Coda Radio Show. And that's like good for announcements, news updates, time changes, at Coda Radio Show. And the at Jupiter Signal account's good for that too. We're live on Mondays now at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern over at jblive.tv. We'd love to have you hang out with us in the chat room. We chat before and after the show, follow the chat room during the show, and we love getting your title suggestions too. But of course, we always appreciate you downloading, subscribing, and sharing the show with a friend. Thanks so much for tuning to this week's episode of the Coder Radio Program, and we'll see you right back here next week.